It's Philosophy Talk. Radio Nation, I know global warming is real, folks. I have believed that ever since Al Gore's movie made money. Can climate art inspire us to action? You really think movies are going to solve climate change? I don't know, Ray. Haven't you seen An Inconvenient Truth? Haven't you seen all those gas-guzzling cars in The Fast and the Furious? That's what people are actually watching. It's bad enough that this documentary made global warming sexy, but now I have to hear the phrase Al Gore's Oscar-nominated film. Can art help us fall in love with a wounded world? We tend to think in hours or days. Can art help us think in decades or even millennia? As a geographer, one of the things I really like to think about is space and time. Our guest is Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. So for me, art can help us kind of recompose space and time of our problems. Can art save us? Oh, that's great art. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. What can art do to tackle climate change? Are science and politics not enough? How could movies, paintings, and poems help us redraw the landscape in our minds? This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Accept your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. And we're grateful to the Stanford Humanities Center for sponsoring today's event. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking, can art save us? Can art save us? I mean, Ray, the world's facing a heap of really bad problems. We've got fascism on the rise again. We've got any number of new infectious diseases. We're on the verge of environmental collapse. You're going to tell me art's going to save us from all that? Oh, come on, Josh. Don't be so pessimistic. We can't give up now. We need the arts to keep us going. Well, I mean, look, the arts are a nice distraction and everything, but if we want to be actually saved, we're going to need... Better leaders, better policies. Oh, and people who are willing to listen to scientists? Yeah, and how are you going to get them to listen to scientists, Josh? you, you got to engage their feelings, you know? Talk to their imaginations. And, and that's where the arts come in. So wait, you're saying people who watch Game of Thrones are going to start reading Scientific American? Uh, I'm not talking about Game of Thrones. I'm talking about art that's, you know, actually about the climate. Like, like that movie Don't Look Up, which shows people ignoring a... a an environmental catastrophe that's just literally right above their heads? Yeah, but the trouble with didactic fiction like that, Ray, is it tends to be, you know, bad. I mean, I found the Rolling Stone review of Don't Look Up pretty refreshing. It said, it's not funny, it's not insightful, it's not even watchable, it's a disaster movie in more ways than one. Yeah, okay, so it's bad. Who cares if it's gonna save the world? I mean, what do you actually care about, Josh? Okay, but look, the problem, Ray, is it isn't going to save the world. I mean, climate deniers, science deniers, they're not going to watch that movie in the first place. If they do happen to watch that movie, they're just going to feel insulted by it. Films like that are just preaching to the converted. Yeah, well, you're not supposed to talk to the diehard climate deniers. Those aren't the people we're going to reach. 
But what about the fence sitters, you know? The people who kind of care but won't get off their duffs to do anything? You know, climate art could really help mobilize them. I just don't understand how that's supposed to work. So, so you've got a climate artwork that's telling people who already believe science that they should believe science? I'm with Blaise Pascal. He says, look, beliefs are great in everything, but if you don't have motivation, they're useless. Yeah, but it's not about changing people's beliefs. I mean, you're a literature scholar, right? Like, you of all people should know that. <laughs> Art just doesn't, doesn't just help people, you know, grasp climate change intellectually. It also helps them engage at an emotional level. Okay, let me see if I understand you. You're saying a viewer of Don't Look Up already knows that climate change is real and dangerous. But once they finished watching Don't Look Up, they are completely devastated by it. They are curled up on the floor in a fetal position, sobbing into their locally sourced popcorn. A and this is supposed to help the movement how exactly? Look, okay, some climate art is depressing, but that's not all it can be. It's like that thing that the poet Louise Glick says, that poetry can become our companion in grief, our rescuer. It gives us the strength to continue our struggle. And art can even help us imagine our way to a better future. You cheated by invoking Louise Glick. I, I find it hard to resist <laughs> any, any quote from her. And I love that quote. But, but do you imagine your way to a better future? I think you've got to bring it about. It's not enough to imagine it. You've you got to lobby your politicians. You've got to get out on the streets. You've got to stage a school strike. OK, it doesn't stop with imagination, but it's got to start there. You're going to need some vision of the better world you're trying to fight for. Uh, like that Kim Stanley Robinson novel, Pacific Edge, right? That's a story where people really get it together. They fight climate change, and then they build a realistic utopia. I mean, that's a cool novel, Ray, but if my memory serves, it was written over 30 years ago. And as far as I can tell, the world still hasn't been saved. What went wrong? Look, look, I'm not saying that one work of art is going to save us all from disaster. But if enough people make enough different kinds of art and engage with the environment at an emotional level, that really could make a difference. And if enough people run for office, develop new technologies, move away from fossil fuels, and take legal action against polluters, we won't need climate art. Yeah, but people aren't going to do any of that unless they actually address their feelings about the climate. And that's why we need art. You know, I bet our guest is going to help you see the value of art. It's Harriet Hawkins, professor of geography at the University of London. Yeah, and maybe Harriet will get some support from our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed. We sent Holly to talk to artists who've been creating music inspired by climate change. Holly files this report. Helen Pryor remembers staying up late at night in 2018, looking at her newborn son and thinking about a new UN report showing the consequences of the planet warming two degrees Celsius. I kind of couldn't understand why we weren't taking more action. Life-threatening heat waves, water shortages, flooding, the loss of almost all coral reefs. And that prompted me to kind of look at psychology research in terms of environmental behaviors and behavior change. Pryor is a music psychologist at the University of Hull in England, so she thinks a lot about how music can influence emotions and behavior. In her paper, How Can Music Help Us Address Climate Change?, she cites the Great Animal Orchestra, a soundscape of animal recordings captured in their natural habitats. 
she also references a heavy metal song called Amazonia by Gojira, which laments the destruction of the rainforest. And there's also How Long by Vampire Weekend, a song about the demise of Los Angeles. How long do we sing again? It's only you and me. How long, how long? Research shows music can help people break habits and exercise for longer, but... There isn't actually very much empirical evidence that links the power of music with environmental behavior specifically. That was my aha moment. Let's just use music instead of a sculpture. Artists like Stefan Crawford understand that music can communicate urgency in ways other mediums can't, and that can drive change. Crawford founded the Climate Music Project to make climate science personal. This is one of their commissioned pieces by Eric Ian Walker, called simply Climate. We're here to really facilitate action, to help people understand the urgency of action and also understand that it's only urgent because we can still do something about this crisis. The Climate Music Project brings together scientists, musicians, and composers. The scientists we've worked with have all the souls of artists, and they, the artists we work with tend to have a little bit of an analytical mind bent as well, so it, it's, it's worked really well. This piece is called What If We, and it tells the story of climate change. Musician Wendy Loomis composed it. We came up with the idea of having the bass represent the landmass and the drums represent the water. Our drummer was thrilled to be able to wipe everybody out. It features original poetry by Royal Kent. Eagle leaves fire in her wake. Tiger's life is at stake. Eagle descends with a crushing blow. Tiger defends, as you know, in a mighty leap. The piece ends on a hopeful note, reminding people we can still take steps to address climate change. What has been revealed to us all, we call climate change. Some climate change music is based on data points, like temperatures or changes in sea level. The music can sound pretty bleak. It's interesting to point your camera at issues of concern, and, you know, that I think is partly what I find myself doing. Chris Chafe is the director of Stanford University's Center for Computer Research in Music and Acoustics. He's a composer and cellist. Here he is playing the metered tide, which uses sea level data from over 100 years of rising waters in San Francisco. So can art save us? Chafes' art has sometimes preceded progress in science and propels us towards solutions. The electric guitar brings that point home for him. Go back to uh, the 30s, and you can say, hmm, humanity started to learn chaos with their ears. And today, it's uh, ubiquitous in mathematics. But time is also running out. Antarctic blue whales are singing their own siren songs. Their tone's deeper now, possibly to cut through the noise of melting sea ice. 
Like Wales, artists are also adapting, creating music to make sure we hear and do something about the melting icebergs. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks so much for that melodious and inspiring report, Holly. I'm Josh Landy, along with my Stanford colleague, Ray Briggs, and we're with a live audience at the Stanford Humanities Center, which has generously sponsored tonight's event. Our guest is a professor of human geography and co-director of the Center for Geohumanities at Royal Holloway University of London. She's also the author of a recent book, Geography, Art, Research. Please welcome to the Philosophy Talk stage, Harriet Hawkins. So Harriet, um, you've written, and if I may say, written brilliantly about how artists can collaborate with scientists to solve big problems. But what first got you interested in the affordances of art? I'm really sorry, this is absolutely not a cool answer. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a kid, I loved doing jigsaws, and I kind of came across one of those jigsaws that has like thousands of pieces, and it happened to be of a kind of 18th century painting, of one of those big, grand London art galleries with thousands of paintings around the walls, of landscapes, of portraits, of pictures of war, and like a gaggle of kind of men and women in the front talking to each other, dressed in kind of nice clothes. These turned out to be the prime ministers, the philosophers, the technologists, the scientists, the activists of their day. And so a 10-year-old me was kind of piecing together the corners and filling in the gaps and thinking, wow, all this art is actually also in the midst of all this science and activism. So, you know, after that, for me, they were inseparable. So, Harriet, Josh has also been telling me how important politicians and scientists are to saving the world. Where does art fit in? Um, I guess art fits in right alongside those. So those, for me, it's not one or the other. It's actually kind of coming, bringing those together. And I think there's kind of lots of different things that kind of art can do in that context. So you know, as a geographer, one of the things I really like to think about is kind of space and time. So for me, art can help us kind of recompose space and time of kind of our problems. So it can be about, um, you know, rather than the problems being someone else's problem somewhere else in the world in a different time, or, you know, even in the, the, the other people in our cities. It can bring it right here, right now for us in ways that really make it matter to us. So that's everydayness. So helping us connect ourselves to the yeah. problem. Is, are there other things as well that art can do? I think art, you know, as we kind of heard in the previous kind of introduction, can also be about that kind of expansion of the imagination. And sure, yeah, imagination is not going to be enough by itself, but it can also kind of lead the way for us. And that's imaginations as much of science and technology as about art, so... Yeah, I mean, one thing I think in that context is about uh, something Helen de Cruz, the philosopher Helen de Cruz, talks about moving the anchor, right? So we're all subject to anchoring bias. Very hard for us to imagine a world that's much different from our current world. But but if you get really immersed in a utopian picture, uh, then maybe that sort of shifts your anchor, your imagination. Are there other artworks in that vein that you think of? Hmm. Interesting. I love to think of that idea of almost like the double work of the imagination. So you have to imagine that future and delink yourself from the present. And I think there are things that art can do really, really well around that. So I'm thinking, for example, about this really powerful work that I really love that's about, um, that kind of includes bringing art into our everyday world. You basically phone up a glacier. So a glacier <laughs> put hydrophones in the water, uh, sorry, an artist put hydrophones in the water of a glacial lagoon. 
and we could then kind of dial a mobile phone number. Her name was Katie Patterson, and you could listen in to the glacier melting. And there was something really kind of powerful and fascinating about how bringing those blips and blurps and slurps of a melting glacier into our daily lives, what that lets us do. This is Philosophy Talk, coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center. Our guest is Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. Have you seen any climate art that inspired you? Have you maybe made some yourself? What do you think is the best way to bring about a better future? Creativity, collaboration, and climate, along with questions from our live audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Maybe one day we'll have peaceful oases instead of parking lots. Can beautiful songs help make that happen? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Harriet Hawkins from the University of London, and we're asking, can art save us? Special thanks to Stanford Humanities Center for sponsoring today's episode. Got a cool question or a warm comment? Join the discussion by raising your hand, and Devin here... We'll bring a microphone around to you uh, when it's your turn to speak. So Harriet, can you tell us about uh, maybe one of your favorite ways that artists are addressing climate change? Ooh, I think one of my favorite ways would have to be collaboration. So I think it just enables kind of so much different, kind of so many different partners to become part of those discussions, so whether that's scientists, communities, or even perhaps the planet itself. Wait, how do you collaborate with the planet itself? Ha <laughs> <laughs> Now. <laughs> so I guess it's about that sense that obviously land artists and earth artists for kind of generations have worked with kind of soil, rock, plants and animals as part of their practice. But I think we see kind of a new generation of artists and I've got a great kind of colleague and collaborator, Sasha Engelman, who works with an artist called Sophie Dyer on this great project called Open Weather. And they kind of sense with satellites. And in working and sensing with satellites, they also sense with weather systems. And then the weather systems help them kind of co-produce sets of images, which they do with kind of collaborators around the world, human and non-human. So, you know, I think it's a great example of how those kinds of sensing practices can really help us get to grips with the kind of forces of our world. So, okay, so we've talked about collaboration. We've talked about utopias. We've talked about dystopian visions, the issue of kind of warning. Mm. Uh, what about enchantments? Because you know, one of my favorite art pieces in this context, um, there's, there's, well, there's a variety of them around, but there's one in San Francisco, mm. are James Terrell's Sky Spaces. Mm. And so the one in San Francisco, you go into this little tiny building, and it frames the sky, and the sky becomes an artwork. Not yeah. that the sky isn't already great, yeah. but, but what about enchantment? What about yeah. artworks that uh, just remind us how incredibly beautiful the world around us is, but you know, we sometimes notice its beauty, but oftentimes we're just in a hurry and we're walking right by all the glory. Are those kinds of artworks also doing the work that you think about? I think they can do, and I think that Terrell piece is another really great example of some of that kind of collaboration with the kind of natural world in different ways. I think there's also kind of different sorts of aesthetic registers, so different registers of feeling that art can do really well. So a piece of artwork I particularly like about climate change is a project where an artist called Vidra Nelson got communities to knit some fuzzy birds 
And so it's a sort of fuzzy climate change that you know, kind of people knitted birds and then they sent knitting kits around the world. And that was about the different migration patterns that these birds have as a result of changing kind of um, changing ocean temperature that changes food sources. For and example. that's a really interesting example because that's not just you know we have this picture of an artist sitting alone in a studio yeah. and making something and then exhibiting it. And people, yeah. but this is a hands-on thing. Yeah. This is art for the audience, yeah. art for the public. Yeah, it really is. It's that kind of question of participation. And there's a great phrase I really love about this, kind of making is connecting. Mm. There's lots of things you could talk about that, and it can, can sound quite naive, right? You know, we make something, it connects us. But actually, there's some really interesting work that talks us through exactly how making connects us, not just with the materials, but also with the people that we make with, whether that's knitting or even things like gardening. So yeah, how do you how do you get people involved? Not everybody is good at knitting or like yeah. a fancy artist. Like if I want to make some climate art, but I'm not very artistic, where where do I start? <laughs> I think that's the great thing about <laughs> things like making is connecting. You don't have to be good. I certainly am not good, and I think there's, there's all sorts of different different ways of doing that. And it can be about the kind of more craft practice, which obviously can also be incredibly skilled, but can also just be about doing things together. It doesn't always have to strike that spectacular, sublime register, which comes back to what you were saying about the kind of enchanting, enchanting work. Yeah, so I want to hear more about collaboration, which, mm. which has been a big theme. So uh, you also mentioned collaboration with scientists. Yeah. How does that work? I think that can work in really fascinating ways. And I think one of the things I saw working in these great organizations that put artists in laboratories was quite the range of ways that that works. So that's not just about the artist taking the fully formed science idea and communicating it, but also finding ways to work kind of upstream of knowledge and helping actually produce the science and critique its form. So that's really, that was really exciting to see. So, so if I can ask like a skeptical question for a moment. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so if I'm a scientist, surely what I'm doing is gathering like cold hard data and trying to build like a theoretical model that gives me the best explanation for that data. Whereas I think of art as something where you don't necessarily have to have a true explanation or even explanation that makes predictions, but like the explanation can imagine something false and still be of value. So how do you put that into science without sort of polluting the truth part of science? Um, I think you've got to be careful not to do down artists or scientists in that formulation. So there's been some great work I've been exploring where you know, art scientists have been doing kind of almost like kind of forensics on animal bones and, um, and kind of flora remains from archaeological digs and using that to construct past climate, but in taking those kind of tiny little remains and constructing whole worlds for us. They have to take those imaginative leaps, and that to me is also part of what makes art art. So that sort of distributed practice that makes artists of all of us in some way. Can we get back to something you were saying earlier about uh, bringing climate change home? Because, mm. uh, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is that climate change is one of those things it's hard for people to get mm. their minds around because uh, the actors are too many, the scale is too vast, the time is too slow. Yeah. Um, and so it's easy to pretend it's not happening or just really not to get, it's hard for the mind to get to grips mm. with it. And so it made me think, well, you know, can narratives help? You know, because there's a lot of novels that will take you through an entire life or even generations. Yeah. Um, so are, are narratives being developed or, you know, TV shows, movies, novels uh, that allow us to kind of get our minds around these, just this huge, huge issue that occupies the whole globe over decades and even millennia? 
Yeah, I think that's one of those really wonderful things that different forms of art can obviously do in different kinds of ways. So the novel can be very focused on a lot of detail or it can cover huge expanses of time, but it can also do both of those at once. And I think enabling us to play and mix up those times and spaces can be what arts can do really, really well for us and really make us feel those things. Yeah, so I want to hear more about genres. Like, what's the opposite of a novel, or like, what's the, the genre <laughs> that does all, all of the things that novels don't do? <laughs> oh, what, what do you think novels don't do? Ooh, um, <laughs> I mean, there are lots of things that novels don't do. I mean, I, <laughs> I, think, I think novels don't give me um, I don't a lot knit of sensory. My novel. Mm, maybe that's the restriction of you. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? You're participating in your art. That's yeah. not usually the stance that we're in with regard to a novel, right? Usually we're kind of, I mean, we're not totally passive. We've got to do things with our minds. But we're not doing things with our hands as we are in the, in the case of the people who are knitting yeah. birds. We're not directly connected yeah. to other people. Yeah. Um, so is that, you know, do you think of that as sort of the shortcoming of the novel slash the advantage of participatory art? I guess I... I like to think that what, what participatory art can do with communities, with different types of communities, whether that's you know, people who might come across the art on the street, whether that's people who go to workshops, whether that's more kind of extended collaborations with kind of community groups in kind of frontline climate spaces, for example. You know, I think there's lots of different ways that those kinds of connections can be built, but also lots of different ways that those, those kinds of participatory works can become empowering ways to kind of amplify people's voices. You're listening to Philosophy Talk, and we're at the Stanford Humanities Center asking, can art save us? With Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. And we have a question from our live audience. So hi, can you tell us your first name and where you're from and then your question or comment? Uh, it's Sarah. Uh, I'm from England originally in Hong Kong, but I live in Los Gatos. Um, so I'm really, I think this is a really fascinating question because to the point of climate skeptics, I mean, the interesting thing is everyone consumes some kind of art, right? Whether it's music or anything else. I'm just curious, Harriet, as to whether you've thought or seen about how um, any artist might have tried to reach climate skeptics through whatever medium, Yeah, you know? Thanks for the question. It's a really great and obviously really important one for those of us who kind of care deeply about these issues. I think it comes back to that thing you were kind of, we were raising about the everyday, actually. And so kind of thinking about, you know, the climate skeptic around the kind of dinner table, he might be one of your relatives. There's some kind of great examples, I think, of artworks that try to do things like predict what um, our back gardens, what we might be able to grow in our back gardens in kind of 100 years' time. So there's an article called um, Juanita Schaefer-Muller, who's done a great work for 2085, that tells us what plants we could grow in Swiss back gardens in 2085 and what we couldn't. And that can really help people understand, I think, and show the climate skeptic in ways that mean will, ch will affect their gardening, what, what can and can't be done. So we've got another question from our live audience. Can you tell us your name, where you're from, and your question or comment? My name is Keo. I'm from planet Earth. <laughs> and I see art works as a verb and want you to consider people like women in eco-arts and design, Ravendra Singh, um, Kiss the Ground, and the Water Stories people that are working collaboratively with the planet and are making positive, uh, creative changes to the environments they're working in. 
Thank you. I think those are absolutely brilliant examples to bring into the discussion. And I think it's that wonderful kind of phrase you use, collaborating with the planet to bring about change, that I think you know, has so much potential within it. And I think the way that you kind of centered that work is really, really vital. So thank you. And you've talked in your work about non-Western and non-hegemonic epistemology. So yeah. can you say a little bit about that, about you know, not, not just art practices, but about other ways of thinking? about uh, you know, human beings and their relationship to the planet. Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. And I think when we think about some of the challenges of a kind of Western environmental imagination and that you know, apparent separation that rules our lives between nature and culture, looking to other kinds of communities and places where already we don't need a new imagination, it's already right there for us. And I think one of the things that art can do really well, especially in collaboration, um, is really work out how to help us in the West understand and amplify some of those kinds of perspectives. So when you're, when you're doing a project like that, how do you make sure you're not just sort of extracting things from the community that you're visiting and not giving back? Yeah, I think that's absolutely vital. And I think we're so used to that word extraction being associated with kind of minerals and resources that we forget. Cultural extraction is a very real thing. And I think that's where collaboration can be so vital. But really thinking collaboration through not only as going there and taking, you know, collaborating on making things, but then collaborating on how those things circulate in the world, where they circulate, what, what places should they show up in. Maybe they shouldn't just show up in Western galleries, but in other spaces as well, spaces that those communities might care about. Do you have an example of like how how like somebody might make those kinds yeah. of decisions? So there's a great collaborator I work with called Amkangiza, who's done this really wonderful work um, called Climates of Listening, which is working with Pacific women, queer and transgender artists, thinking about kind of how to amplify their frontline experiences of ecocide and kind of extraction that's happening in Pacific in the Pacific, and that's a really wonderful example, and it, it's online for people to look at. Yeah, and I mean, you know, of course, another possible relationship to uh, that kind of art is also just to sit and listen, yeah. right? For, for those not members of the community to go and experience it and just listen. And, yeah. and one of the things I'm interested about in, in the way that you talk about the value, there's many different kinds of values of art in this context, is about a certain kind of epistemic modesty, mm. right? Yeah. About acknowledging the limits, right? Being a little less confident, a little less yeah. arrogant, a little less smug, right? We, yeah. we often like to think, oh yeah, I, I know all of that. I, yeah. I know what we're doing. But the, but the idea that one of the things art can do for us is knock us off of our, you know, high perch, um, which Zadie Smith talks about beautifully in relation to the yeah. novel, yeah. get uncomfortable with uncertainty and not knowing. And, and George Saunders also talks about it, the value of arts to make us a s slow down and you know, be more thoughtful. So is that, do you, how does that figure into climate change? Is there such a thing as an experience of art that would be sort of salutary humiliating, right? <laughs> um, that would just kind of knock us down a peg or two? I love that. love that imaginary. Um, I think I've always been very struck by that discussion of some of these problems as like kind of wicked problems. Wicked here, obviously, with a moral economy, but also a kind of complexity and, you know, not a one-size-fits-all solution and certainly not a kind of certain mastery. And I think art can really encourages me, certainly, to spend a lot of time sitting in the uncertainty and with that complexity and, and refusing a singular answer. And I think that, that feels to me to be really, really productive. So I, I feel like one of the reasons that people don't engage that much emotionally with climate change is because it is overwhelming. Yeah. And so I, I love the idea of being able to sit with ambiguity and not be overwhelmed. Do you have thoughts about like, so I would like to feel a feeling other than despair. 
and I would also like to understand the world around me. And these things are intention. Like, <laughs> are there other feelings I could be exploring through art that would be still appropriate? Yeah, I think that, that yeah, the tendency for thinking about despair. There's been some really wonderful work recently thinking about how we can think about the enchantment that you were speaking about, about art, but also about the kind of narrativization as well and looking elsewhere in the world to different kinds of indigenous communities or to communities of doing practices of self-determination to find these stories of existing positive lives and hopeful futures. So we've got another question or comment from our live audience. Can you tell us uh, your name, where you're from, and your question or comment, please? Sure. My name is Carmen. I live in Woodside, California. And to your point, Ray, about something that evokes something besides despair, uh, about a year and a half ago at the what was known as the Cliff House, which is a San Francisco landmark, after it closed, the Foresight Foundation put on an exhibit called Land's End. And one of the more memorable, uh, they were just beautiful. Each each room or area of the Cliff House was taken over by a different artist. And they had these cylinders of water and members of the community helped carry the seawater, carry it literally from the end of the cliff into the cylinders. And it was a fire brigade. And it also brought to mind, okay, yes, we're having rising sea levels. Um, one at the the booth, the the tables were covered with this precious clay. It was just, it made you think about it, but it also inspired respect and awe of the environment at the same time. So it was that beautiful balance of despair and hope and making you want to do something. Yeah. I'm impressed with how many more artists lately are making climate art. Uh, mm -hmm. Somebody emailed us about uh, Palo, Al Palo Alto Community Arts Center has a, a climate exhibit coming up as well, which I didn't realize. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're asking, can art save us? With Harriet Hawkins from the University of London. How do you persuade the climate skeptics in your family? What movie, painting, or poem might open their minds? Or is there some other creative strategy that you've tried? We're coming to you from the Stanford Humanities Center, who've generously sponsored tonight's event. We'll take more questions from our live audience when Philosophy Talk continues. dance our way to solving climate change? I'm Josh Landy, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ray Briggs. Our guest is Harriet Hawkins from the University of London, and we're at the Stanford Humanities Center, asking, can art save us? And we've got another question or comment from our live audience. Hi, I'm Brian from San Francisco, and I'm an artist myself, and I was wondering I know that you've talked about this a little bit, but I was wondering if you could elaborate on some effective strategies for artists to create impactful artworks that can inspire social, environmental, or cultural change on a global level. Thanks, that's a really great question. And um, I guess it's making the work that you want to make as an artist would be one of the parts of the answer. But I think some of the strategies I've been um, 
most kind of struck by, aside from the kinds of discussions we're having about collaboration, have been the ways that um, kind of different forms of sensing practice can be kind of used to kind of bring, again, bring those kinds of things like the scale kind of problematic into the here and now and into the everyday lives. So thinking about the ways that we can help us sense those vast scale things kind of bring climate change out of the abstract can be, I think, really, really valuable. And I think also kind of questions around that sort of different kinds of imaginations. So rather than the kind of imagination that's about kind of separation and distance, how can we think about entangling ourselves with, with the kind of world in different ways? Not because that necessarily makes us kind of care, but, but might take us some way towards doing that if we recognize our kind of engagements in different ways. So I have a kind of strategy question which is about audience, I guess. Yeah. So there, there are various things you might want your climate art to do. So one is galvanize people who already care, sort of protest mm -hmm. art for the troops. And one is like open the minds of diehard skeptics. And in between, you've got like find people who sort of care but are sort of apathetic and mm -hmm. get them to care more. Yeah. Where are the places that art can or should fit in best? as far as finding an audience and how do you figure out what your audience is? Yeah. I mean, I think there's, kind of, there's obviously really big differences between the kind of art that exists in kind of gallery spaces and does certain kinds of work, because you know, we all know only certain kinds of people necessarily find their way into gallery spaces by choice. But then there's also all that kind of broad kind of culture that exists in the world that's what we listen to when we kind of drive to work, what we kind of walk along, what we consume almost passively on the radio or in podcasts. And some of that kind of work, I think those sorts of spaces and the work that might turn up there can also change our imaginations in ways we don't necessarily realize, but it's almost like osmosis. So if you want to get your uh, climate-centered art in front of people, um, don't necessarily put it in a gallery, but, but what do you do? I mean, it, what, what's, the, what's the way to reach the most people, including people who aren't necessarily already that enthusiastic about tackling the problem? Mm -hmm. I think we've seen some great examples of worker things, artwork at places like COP, for example, where you have artists kind of bringing large kind of icebergs or kind of balls of ice into the center of our cities and just letting them melt there. And so people are going about their daily lives and suddenly encounter blocks of ice just sitting there melting in public spaces. I think work like that can be incredibly powerful. People don't necessarily know they're experiencing art. They're just <laughs> going about their lives and it's there, but it's doing something. So we've got a question or a comment from our audience. Jean-Pierre, Paris, and Stanford. So let's not be naive. Climate change has a lot to do with power and capitalism. Think of uh, Naomi Klein's book, um, Climate versus Capitalism, including, of course, state capitalism, etc. As for America, the fact that America continues to burn shell gas and shell oil, okay, contributes a lot. So what can art do vis-a-vis -vis of power? Yeah, thank you. I think it's a really, really important point. I think we can look to history to see where different sorts of activist groups have directly enrolled art and aesthetic strategies, like thinking of the kind of slogan from the 1960s European avant-garde, all power to the imagination, which directly kind of stages for us that potential of the imagination in relation to power. We can also think of the ways that kind of activist groups um, 
I'm thinking of kind of large kind of anti-oil activist groups that work um, around galleries like the National Gallery in London or Extinction Rebellion have enrolled kind of different sorts of aesthetic strategies. So I think there's some ways that kind of art is taking the kind of discussion right to those kinds of large questions of power and, and, and have done for, for many, many years. But I think also there's ways that art can work in those kind of gentle politics and we shouldn't, I think, overlook some of the value and importance of kind of gentle politics too and the ways that that can kind of also have real force amongst kind of state power. This actually brings me to a question I have. Uh, uh, it's not directly tackling the engines of capitalism, but, but I wonder about whether we can start to calm down the consumerism in ourselves. Author mm. Schopenhauer has an interesting view about at least some art that it kind of takes our will offline. Mm. Um, and Wendell Berry had a kind of eco version of this. Mm. You, you might have a favorite novel you just read over and over and over again. You're not consuming any fossil fuels doing that. Mm. Um, so is there, is there a place for art to do that, to basically tamp down on the kinds of desire that consumerism wants to ramp up and that, so that we're just buying more and more and using more and more resources? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. There's been some really interesting um, kind of ideas around the, the kind of coming back to that making and connecting idea that sort of doing that kind of thing can be very good for things like eco-anxiety and kind of depression and isolation and loneliness, which I think speaks to some of those kinds of questions. But I also think some of those kinds of, you know, our sense of kind of the imagination and creativity need not necessarily involve us in some of those kinds of consumerist logics that we're so easily caught within. So we've got another question or comment from our live audience. Uh, Jess, I'm from San Francisco originally. I live in Chicago now. I'm wondering, so um, as you've been talking about different artworks dealing with climate change, I've heard a lot of examples about uh, losing something valuable, seeing something irreparably damaged, uh, things that try to teach awe and hope and this sort of elegiac like love of the environment. But one of the things that I'm wondering about is like the consequence of climate change is mass misery for the whole planet, right? Like we're destroying our own house. Are you aware of any artists who are working in the medium of misery who are trying to sort of convey that consequence? Yeah, I think there's there's huge amounts of work that's doing really, really fascinating kind of explorations of, I guess, that kind of pair of the enchantment, the kind of disenchantment and the misery and a kind of lack of hope. And I think those kinds of works are really important for making sure that we don't get carried away with hope. Resilience can be a powerful word, but it can also be a dangerous word. And we need to kind of be aware of not kind of trying to make people become too hopeful when actually, yes, they live in kind of, you know, condition, conditions are not good and they're going to potentially get very, well, get, get a lot worse. Yeah, a couple of years back, we, uh, we had Jane Hirschfield, the poet, on the show, and she's got a book of very despairing, and I felt very moving, climate poems. And I think that's one artwork that captures that ethos. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how do, you, how do you strike that balance? I mean, it's something that Carmen was talking about a moment ago, right? an exhibition that manages to strike the balance. But do you have any general thoughts you know for, for if an artist wants to embark on this how do they how do you how do you balance the hope against the despair get the right balance 
I think you possibly sit with the fact that as human beings, we all go through those cycles of feelings in different kinds of ways. And it could be that you're making work that suits you at a particular point in time, and that's because you feel hopeful. It could be you're working with communities who want to tell hopeful stories, who don't only want to have negative stories about their lives told in the world. And I think that's very important to honor too. So I think you know, being sensitive to the sort of place you're working with, maybe your collaborators, and also your own feelings at that point in time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of dislike the idea that there's just one way to feel <laughs> about something as gigantic yeah. as climate change. Like, it seems like a bunch of incompatible emotions yeah. are all appropriate yeah. and maybe each helpful in some context. Yeah, I've been thinking quite a lot about um, our, not just about uncertainty and complexity, but also about ambivalence and how it can kind of let us sit with that kind of dynamic interplay and find power in that rather than always having to kind of settle for the singularity, which reproduces some of the kind of mastery and sovereignty that surely we're also trying to get away from when we're thinking about what got us into this mess. That's a really powerful thought. I, I want to ask about one thing before we run out of time. Um, uh, my wonderful former colleague, no longer with us, Michel Serre, uh, once talked about an experience he had, he got stuck on the side of a mountain. He was mountaineering. It was going to take hours for people to come rescue him. And he started thinking about how old everything was he could see. The moon, billions of years. The Alps, hundreds of millions. This house down there, you know, maybe 200. That cow, 10 years. The blade of grass, maybe a month. That's an incredibly enchanting picture of the world that really, uh, you know, it transforms our engagement with it. Is there art that can do that, that can turn us into geologists, basically? Absolutely. There <laughs> absolutely certainly is. And I think that's one of the things that we kind of see over and over again. So an exhibition I've been involved in recently has been called Hollow Earth, and that was really about trying to get us to rethink the subterranean, both in terms of those classic sublime images of magma and volcanoes, but also kind of geologic intimacies, kind of proximities to rocks, stone, and forces of the, of the kind of earth in different kinds of ways. So I think absolutely it can do that. So if you had one kind of thought to leave our audience with about like, carrying lessons from art forward mm. into their own response to climate change? What, what would you say? Um, hmm. I think I would say, um, if we think about art, for me, there's ideas of creativity, there's ideas of imagination, and there's ideas of knowledge politics that we've talked about, that kind of humbleness, that ability to sit with complexity and uncertainty. And I think those are lessons that certainly teaches me that I try and carry into all areas of my life, whether that's about climate change or beyond. Well, Harriet, this has been not just a comforting, conversation, but also a really inspiring one. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Our guest has been Harriet Hawkins, Professor of Human Geography, co-director of the Center for Geo-Humanities at Royal Holloway, London, and author of Geography, Art, Research. We'll put links to everything we've mentioned today on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you can also become a subscriber and immerse yourself in a library of more than 500 episodes. And if you have a question that wasn't addressed on today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at comments at philosophytalk.org, and we may feature your question on our blog. Now, faster than a melting iceberg, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, for a few years there, there were articles in magazines, remember those? Airline magazines, remember those? About how we might evolve into a society that no longer needed to work. Not too sure how that was supposed to work, without work, robots, artificial intelligence, yada yada. There'd be no need for money, and we'd all just have it, kind of like 
Social Security, well, that wasn't the important part. The important part was how much time we'd have, time to do the things denied our souls because we were busy mixing cement or crunching numbers or shouting at underlings. We'd make trips, learn Italian, make art, art. I gather this is kind of like outsider art in the last century. Guys who got laid off at the lumber mill would take their chainsaws out of storage to make mermaids and presidents out of redwood trees. There was a guy, a janitor out of DC, who in his spare time made a gathering place for the second coming in a garage. He made thrones of glory out of folding chairs and aluminum foil with a seating chart for the Lord, Jesus, various figures in the book of Revelation. The artist, James Hampton, worked on it for years and kept a notebook in which he referred to himself as St. James with the title, Director, Special Projects for the State of Eternity. Nobody knew about it until after his death, but his conference room, as it were, is now on display at the Smithsonian. Not today we think he's nuts, but all art began there. Hymns and chants and plays of God and saints, their glory and suffering, and the baby Jesus and Jesus and the cross. Dukes and kings that pay for these things to hang in their castles. Pictures of saints right next to the portrait of the Duchess. Museums rose up, orchestras, coliseums, vast halls. Pictures of gods gave way to generals and then on to Dada and Cubism, away from glory and on to personal expression. Later, Andy Warhol put art on the assembly line. Now we save money with reality, with true crime. We have shows on television right now, even as I speak, that are just surveillance camera footage. It's like candid camera, only paranoid. We still have art for the common people, but it's found in decor, outfits, true crime. We still build coliseums, but our leaders are indifferent, and sports teams won't pay for them. So bond issues are the new emperors, dispensing largesse and buildings that will be obsolete at about the same time the baseball team decides to move to Vegas where large buildings devoted to sport are just so much pocket change, really. The point being, art is something you're driven to do. The pandemic showed us that we don't have that drive, if we ever did. We spent our lockdown watching undercooked movies on Netflix. We stewed in our juice, emerging to moan about vaccinations and entitlement and wokeness and MAGA and cancel culture and mandates. Things are okay, kind of, right now, except for the global warming part. Yet everybody is fearful, angry, and anxious. We're bored of our own affluence and angry at the homeless and trans for being where we're looking. Goodbye to individualism. Now it's all about family, community, diversity, team building. Even people who got out of the rat race don't spend time learning to throw pots or make their own pigments out of squid they raise themselves in octopus farms. That's the millennial dream, they say. To carve your own ukulele out of the shattered yet silly dreams of baby boomers, turning the bitter songs of Gen X into twee little ballads sung breathlessly and yet without effect, like psychopathic lullabies you can dance to, kind of. That's harsh. Well, okay, we are excited about artificial intelligence. We use it to make grotesque machine-driven images and then have another artificial intelligence write amusing captions for them. That is our future, America, curating the whims of robots and then tweeting about them at Elon's whim. And creative is now a noun. A creative is a person on your team who knows what a pencil is and why there's no need to have one. A thought leader for the thoughtless. First fired, I believe, when the layoffs come, but first to do a TED Talk, if we still have those in 2020. Oh, wait, did 2020 already happen? Oof. Director of Special Projects for the State of Eternity. Is that job still open? I gotta go. <laughs> Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW Local Public Radio San Francisco Bay Area and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2023. Our executive producer is Ben Trefney. The senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Dan Brandon is the technical director. Special thanks to Merle Kessler, Conchita Perales, Becky Barron, Karen Ajluni, Linda Fagan, Emily Huang, and Elizabeth Zhu. Thanks also to Roland Green, Eric Ortiz, Bob Cable, Patricia Tsarasas, and all the staff here at the Stanford Humanities Center, which has generously sponsored tonight's event. 
Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the subscribers to our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KLW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation can, continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a subscriber and gain access to our live of more than 500 episodes. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.